What's going on, guys? Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Raymond San Agustin, uh, and he's a doctor of chiropractic. We're going to be talking all about uh, getting lifters out of pain. So first off, thanks so much for jumping on the, uh, the podcast, Ray. Can you give a little bit of a background for yourself, for anyone who maybe isn't familiar with who you are and, and what you do? Oh, awesome. Um, yeah, my again, I'm a doctor of chiropractic. Um, I was an RN back in another lifetime, it seems. Um, I started out as a break dancer, went into yoga, eventually found like a CrossFit and then found my way into weightlifting. And that's kind of mostly what I do for fun now. Um, I'm one of the, I'm the clinical director and one of the owners of Dynamic YYC. So I'm usually in charge of a lot of the education piece with all of our clinicians, which we just wrapped up this weekend, actually. So, yeah. Awesome. So um, that's actually a local um, uh, clinic here in Calgary, but you guys are branching out over the next little while. Is that correct? That's what we're hoping to do. Uh, it's just kind of like uh, it's in the works, but we'll see where that goes. Yeah, awesome. Um, so I figure it probably will be best to couch the conversation in kind of some similar terminology, because a lot of the times when we're talking about pain, when we're talking about injury or any of these things, even if we're talking about the core, right? People have different concepts of what actually is involved in the core. And so um can you just kind of define pain and injury and I guess feel free to just sort of explore both of those contexts to, sorry, both of those terms to, to kind of expand a little bit of the context of what it is that we're going to be discussing today? Well, this is like a massive, massive, massive topic in general. And by no means would I say I'm an expert in understanding it. I usually just fall on um, O'Sullivan's definition just because it's, I think it's the most encompassing. It's uh, a perception of, of threats of either actual or potential tissue damage. And um, it's, it's usually conscious. And um, actually last week there was this huge thing of whether or not it's a sensation or a perception. And um, a few, I guess, people that I follow on Twitter and kind of people that are talking on social media um, are arguing about that. They're just, kind of talking about whether or not pain is, is, um, is it, does it have to be conscious in order to be something that's real? And, or is it, um, is it like less than that is an actual sensation? And that's where the, the muddy, like the waters are really, really muddy. So to me and how I approach it, um, I just, for my explanations to patients, it's, it's pain is really just an, uncomfortable experience um, based on actual or potential tissue damage. Like I just, I explained that to them because sometimes it's just your brain warning you that something might happen um, either because of past injury or um, you just might feel like shit that day for lack of a better, better explanation. And your body just doesn't feel like it has the capacity to deal with what it's, it's about to go through. So does that uh, kind of clear it up, clear it as, as it yeah, can be, I, mean, I guess? <laughs> I think doing this kind of an interesting discussion anyways, because we were talking about this. So I actually have been seeing Ray for a couple of injuries. I tore my adductor and had some shoulder injuries, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, so we were chatting about this last week, I believe, like the biopsychosocial model and kind of the spectrum of where people are sort of falling on that, like the 
sort of mechanistic biological versus now it's like, Oh, it's all just your emotions and feelings. And it, yeah. it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting to like hear some of the concepts and some of the context, because then you even talk about like local anesthetic and it's like, you know, you can look at, you know, like, like for instance, the example that I often hear is you can break your leg and not even know it until you look down, then you start experiencing pain. But then at the same time, it's like, okay, well, if you have a massive wound or something like that, and they apply like a local anesthetic or something like if you're getting your wisdom teeth removed. So I got my wisdom teeth removed and I was conscious the whole time. That would obviously be extremely painful if they didn't apply anesthetic. And so it's like, okay, there's obviously a very strong biological component there. Um, yeah. But then it, it, it's almost like that changes, like how much of each thing changes depending on the person depending on their own, like maybe biology or, or whatever. I, I don't even know. It's, it's an interesting conversation for sure to, to get into, but, um, and in terms of injury, how would you classify injury since we kind of talked about pain a little bit? Oh, and that's, again, that's also another big topic because just because something's in pain doesn't always mean that it's injured. It doesn't mean that that tissue is, is actually broken down or over overexerted. It's just, <clears throat> for example, let's just use an example to, to illustrate this. A, a child usually falls when they're playing in a, in a playground. And oftentimes, especially if they're young enough, they'll look to their parent first to under, to like, okay, am I okay? And sometimes the overwhelming response of a parent is actually what makes them experience pain. They start crying. And sometimes they're like, no, you're good. Just dust it off. And they're like, okay, I'm bouncy and move on. So the experience of it wasn't, it didn't match injury. So with injury, it's usually, I would argue it, it is something that, it is something that interferes with um, your function. So it's, it solely lies on your ability to execute what you need to do. <clears throat> and what, for, and that can go on a, a huge spectrum as well. Cause if let's just say tendinopathy, um, which is repetitive motion where there's disorganized tissue. And for some people that's pretty sore. And for some people that isn't, is it be, is it an injury when it's painful or is it an injury regardless of the pain? Uh, and that's just kind of, for me, I would just, I would say no, because even though the tissue is disorganized, if they're stable, still able to function and kind of address their programming or their, their daily tasks around that, I, I don't know if I would, um, classify it so much as an injury just because I'm I'm also very weary about individuals who like really hold on to that idea of being injured they're there you have to be over medicalization and stuff like that so sorry you're you muted there oh yeah like it, pe people who internalize that information yeah and that like that catastrophization right so like the moment even I'm very, very weary with shoulder pain to tell people, oh, you probably have a rotate, rotator cuff strain because it hurts in the front there. I, I, I'm, it's, I usually say it's probably likely, but I mean, it could also just be sensitive tissue right now. But 
right now, why don't we just focus on what you're able to do and kind of redirect that. And, and that's, that's happened before where we're like, okay, we can't get them out of pain. They were told by many practitioners prior to this, that they have a rotator cuff strain. And then we try to work with them. We get them to do kind of whatever they can. We send them out for imaging and there's nothing. So is that an injury still? I, I don't know. I, I would still say it is because it's interfering with their function, but it doesn't have any evidence in regards to actual tissue. Like this is where like pain can sometimes be, it's not synonymous with injury. And I, I think that's where it gets very, very confusing for a lot of practice, like clinicians, athletes, and, and uh, coaches. Yeah. So I guess just to kind of reiterate, like there, there's obviously a relationship between pain and injury, um, but it's not a one-to-one -one correlation and the associations are still a bit murky at this time. Is that kind of a fair assessment? That's yeah. I would say, I would say yes. That's like the, it's they're Yeah. They're almost separate, but correlated to each other. Yeah. Okay. And so when, <clears throat> When a I guess we'll kind of keep this within, like, confine it within the context of lifters, since it's probably most people who, who listen to the podcast anyways. Um, when a lifter comes to you and they're experiencing some sort of pain or if they have an injury or, or, you know, anything sort of within that wheelhouse, how do you approach the initial assessment, the conversations around that, the intervention, um, and then just even kind of communicating potential recovery timelines with, with them as well. I know that's kind of a big question. So, yeah, that's huge. And that's like kind of what we teach in the, on our onboarding systems. Well, like an initial, we usually do orthopedic examinations just simply because there's evidence to rule in or rule out bigger pathology, just to make sure we can kind of take out some other big things on the table. Can you just quickly define what an orthopedic assessment is for people who maybe don't know? It is basically a series of movements um, guided by a clinician um, that have diagnostic, sorry, yeah, that are, it's used for diagnostic assessment that have usually a little bit of research behind them to kind of rule in and rule out um, certain pathologies. So, it, but it's really just movements for the most part. Okay, awesome, thanks. And um, so we'll use those, but that's not, not our main assessment. We mostly use that in case we do need to send them out. Um, it's basically just, it's a, it's a lexicon or a group of words that other healthcare practitioners know so that you can at least communicate a little bit because not everyone knows what a front rack is. Not everyone knows what a low bar back squat is. So if I were to send a Joe Smo to a sports med doc that most, mostly works with endurance runners, I could tell them that they have a positive Hawkins Kennedy test um, rather than, oh, they have pain in their low bar back squat. You know, so it just, it's a, it's a way for us to communicate with other healthcare practitioners. But with us internally, we just kind of, we keep it to the movements that they experience pain. And then we try to figure out, is this movement that we're testing meaningful for either the sport or the everyday life of the athlete? Um, and then could they get into it with load, without load, or um, if they could do it passively or if they could, uh, by me putting them into that same position or if it 
um, there's interference by when they do it themselves. Um, it's pretty basic in terms of an assessment, other than the fact that I would think we put much more weight on um, what is the movement that that person requires. It's just, it's a shape. Like say someone needs an upward dog and they get back pain in yoga. That's going to look a lot different than if I need to look at someone's sumo deadlift. So like we just look at the shape that the person requires. Um, and then we kind of start our assessment from there. Um, and then obviously like a general history, are there things in their life that uh, we need to either worry about? Are they getting this, this pain at nighttime um, or is it during the day? Is it kind of when they're sitting for extended periods of time, is it happening during work or whatever those kind of, um, those kind of questions may be. And then um, another thing that I think every practitioner should ask is what are their goals? Cause me looking at, I think the first time I saw you, you were about to go to nationals or something, right? You were like, we have four weeks yeah. and I got to get, get this rib cage out of, out of the way or something. I couldn't remember what it was. Yeah. I'd have to look. <laughs> it was fucking stupid. I went to spar <laughs> for the first time in like, I don't know, 10 years. And I tore my oblique rotating on one of my punches. Yeah. You're like, I got to compete soon. And I was like, okay, so this is going to look a lot different than someone who has, you know, they're like four months out. So um, that will base off the intervention, but really the intervention that we have available at the clinic is my body, some weight, a table and my hands. Like, and I usually just try to load them in any which way to recreate what they require. Um, and then if they need some sort of desensitizing um, intervention, whether it's like soft tissue, some people really like that. Or if it's like, um, if I need to send them out for something a little bit more, um, I usually don't. But if I do need to get maybe like imaging or whatever, like we usually just send that out. <clears throat> right. And so a couple things you, you touched on there. Um, and one of the things was positions. You talked about positions and loading what the individual needs. So can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Because I think a lot of the times when people are thinking about recovery, they're thinking in terms of exercises versus functionality of the tissues or you know, muscle action, tendon insertions, like things like that. And so I think, especially just even what we were chatting about last time um, is, is particularly relevant to help give people a slightly better understanding of what's actually going on, because you talked about putting people in positions. And so what exactly do you mean by that? And how do you, what do you mean when you say relevant to what the individual needs? So like, um, we basically, I don't know how to word that in a different fashion. So like we legit just, or can you ask, give an example maybe? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we legit just ask them like, okay, what do you need? What do you need out of your goals? Like um, for a power lifter might be, I can't get my arms back in my low bar anymore without elbow pain. So I'm like, okay, well we got to look at the position that you require in a low barbell back squat or for some reason, I happen to have a lot of um, 
equestrians, like a lot of dressage patients. Like it's like not at all my wheelhouse. Well, no, that's not true. It is for some reason happens to be something I understand really well, but I've ridden on a horse once and all I need to ask them is what do you require to turn right for a horse? And they will show me, they'll just show me like, this is what I need to do. And then they'll put themselves in to the position that they require. They need to press for, okay. So with riding a horse and this is, I'm probably going to botch this because we usually work together in this. And I'm going to use this example because it's a perfect reason of how you have to understand what they need rather than what you, you do or what you expect them to need is a horse naturally wants to go away from the side of pressure. So to ask the bend in the horse, you have to put pressure into the side of the body. And that can be done in very fascinating ways. You can do it by squeezing the thighs together in adduction, which is not what you want because that actually cues the horse to stop or slow down. What they actually want is external rotation of the femoral acetabulum, acetabular joint by pushing the ankle into the horse while keeping the knee in space. But I would never know that unless I saw what they required and they showed me it. And this also requires that the athlete knows what they need um, in order to execute that. And then I work with them. I'm like, okay, because I don't know your sport. You're going to have to tell me what you need in order to make this better. And then we just figure that out and we put them into the shapes that they require for their sport and go from there. And like, and then let's take it to the realm of what we need. Like I need a sumo deadlift and I just can't seem to get my range of motion anymore. Like, okay, well let's see what's, what's the limiting factor. Is it abduction? Is it external rotation, internal rotation? Is it a combination of both? Is this, is there a restriction because of, of, previous pain or is it is the restriction like your bony anatomy where unfortunately we just can't change your skeletal tissue anymore and we're going to have to figure out how to modify your lift specific to what you require and then kind of meet in the middle ground or or is it like just soft tissue because restrictions because you don't have the capacity in that range of motion quite yet and this is just going to take time Mm-hmm. So just to clarify, it sounds like you're kind of identifying where the sort of linchpins are in the individual's movement, what's potentially causing them pain, doing whatever's necessary to get them out of pain or at least reduce pain to a manageable threshold where now they can actually start to build up tolerance. And then mm-hmm. the tolerance comes through those specific positions. You call them shapes, I guess, but positions that are yeah. relatively <laughs> there. Um to their sport or the activity that they need to do. Is that a fair assessment of what you're saying? That's exactly what it is. And it's like, and the nice thing, and you know what it's like, it's it's basically a 200 pound Asian guy wrestling you for 45 minutes. And like, I'm the load. It's basically a personal training session, but like I'm exerting the force onto you just so you either have an opportunity to figure out where to best amortize that load that that's happening or to uh, build capacity there. Yeah. I was really surprised with the technique where you had me stripped down to just naked and then cover me in oil. That was, that was a weird <laughs> technique, but it seemed effective. So. 
<laughs> no, um, <laughs> very clearly that's a joke, everyone listening. Um, yeah, no, it, it, it definitely is like interesting, but I, I actually really enjoy the, the treatments because they very much seem like a training session. Like it's not just kind of like, okay, chill there, do like a, you know, a squat on a BOSU ball while holding this thing or like just some nonsense. It's like by the end of it, I'm like exhausted. Like I need to take a nap and have like a big meal. Like I'm pretty exhausted, but uh, yeah. I, and and I've, I've always found that like that sort of stuff set, seems to be the most aggressive way to rehab. And when I say aggressive, I mean, I guess that can be kind of interpreted a handful of different ways, but um, aggressive slash effective, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I've always seen like significant benefits from that type of therapy versus purely manual therapy where it's like, I actually don't even get any sort of relief from manual therapy anymore. Like I, I still go to massage personally, every like, month or so just to like if i really just need to like relax and basically have a nap like i'll just kind of fall asleep when they're doing their thing but as a therapy i've never really found manual therapies to be all that effective outside of like maybe five minute window of temporary relief you know um so so yeah I've, i've definitely seen a big difference in terms of like the actual style of of uh i guess corrective activities that that we were doing um so what are some of the things that you found to be really important when communicating this process with some of your clients? Oh, honestly, the, I, I like to say the proof is in the pudding kind of thing. You just show them <clears throat> like it's because you can explain all you want and, you know, there's a lot of jargon that happens sometimes and, um, the patient is almost always already overwhelmed with the fact that they can't just return to their sport or their activity without having to worry about all these other things. So there's just a lot of factors. And I, I want to really just like take all of that off. If I can, if there's a way to just show them, look, this is what you want from your um, activity. And right now, you just can't tolerate, like, this is just an example. You just can't tolerate this. Or, um, oh, do you notice that when you can figure out how to load here, um, you can kind of dampen some of that discomfort. Maybe we just need to pivot um, how you're loading it or um, the range of motion and then gradually kind of go into those other ranges of motion. But you just show them because most people are, it's really sad actually they're just like not in tune with their body most like the general public and then once you show them that they're like they're just they need to lift something and then they're like oh well why don't i just go for a run i was like well like running is up to six times your body weights in force in each leg it's so it's hard to just assume that if you can't lift something that's decently heavy without hurting yourself that you could just go for a run and expect to be pain-free as well. Like that's physics. That's where like the biomechanistic portion of it is you can't get rid of that. Like there's forces of tolerance that your tissue just doesn't have yet. It'll get there, but you just need to give it some time and you actually need to challenge it enough where you can recover and not be a, 
stuck in bed for the rest of the weekend in order to, cause like some people just go too hard too. And you have to find the perfect number for them as well. So you just show them. And that's kind of the nice thing about, I guess the way we treat is it's so, uh, it just makes sense. Like you don't really have to explain it because they're like, that makes sense. Like they just felt exactly what they were feeling. And, and then you just, you just show it to them. Right. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. So in terms of, cause obviously I, I, I'm think that you have a fairly high amount of clients that are an athletic population. Um, but I also assume that you have a decent amount of, of clients that are also sort of just like gen pop. Um, and between the two, I'm wondering if you struggle with um, client adherence to the actual protocols, like if they have homework to do or whatever, because I know even like, um, I'm just finishing up a paper right now that I'm writing. And one of the things that I talk about in the paper is that uh, adherence to like life-saving medication that people have like in their home is about 50% adherence. It's like, <laughs> which is astonishing. It's like this medication will actually stop you from dying and you have it in your house and only about 50% of the time are people actually taking it as prescribed. So I would assume that there's usually some sort of issue with adherence. It's, it's usually a problem. So how do you actually go about getting people to adhere to the program to rehab themselves or or even just pre present enough of a stimulus sometimes because a lot of times people just kind of skip that shit because it's not squat bench or deadlift or weightlifting or whatever it is that they're used to it's actually pretty cool like um well you train with Darrell like and we've done this a few times where he sends his people that have pain and we honestly just sometimes just work with a coach and just get them to program some sort of rehabilitation or modification of their program already. Um, if they're not a gym person, we usually just have to find the thing that they can, I guess, easily access. Like for someone who has a band at home, you'll have to figure out what's the best way to do this, where they can sneak it in throughout the day, because um, worth and showing someone an exercise is worthless if it's they're not going to repeat it because you and I both know that tissue change and and anything only happens with consistency over time. So um, we usually just find the exercise that gets them out of pain the most, and that could be one or two, and then we're like, just do those for do this on one day, do this the other day. And sometimes it's just rolling, unfortunately. Like we know that doesn't cause tissue change, but at least it dampens their pain enough for them to return to going for a walk for 20 minutes a day. You know, like most people that we see are very active, but there are some patients where I'm just like, what do you do for exercise? And they are like, I do absolutely nothing. And I was like, well, your rehab is 20 minutes of walking every day five days a week, sorry, um, just to get your physical activity guidelines, like just to meet the physical activity guidelines. Like, and unfortunately that will probably do so much for them. Like it doesn't need to be a silver bullet exercise every once in a while. Sometimes you just need to get off their ass and move around because it's the way humans have been evolved for many millennia. 
Yeah, actually, it's crazy. There was a recent uh, paper that came out looking at mortality relative to, I think it was step count. And uh, I think Greg published, Greg Knuckles published uh, like a little um, graph or infographic or whatever on his Instagram page. I think someone sent that to me. I think that was him anyways. But like step count is one of the most like underrated things for fitness, for health, for um, cardiovascular health and just like aerobic capacity in general that's like so low barrier to entry and because even 20 minutes realistically I don't even think 20 minutes is enough to meet the minimum requirements but it's a start <laughs> you yeah know? you got to start somewhere that's mostly <laughs> yeah and, and, and that's the thing like well, exactly like you said you know someone has gone from no exercise at all and they have a band at home or whatever and then you're like okay I need you to go into the gym and you're going to set up the Smith machine like this and you're going to do this and you're going to do this and it's just like, um, oh, sorry, I'm going to call. <laughs> Anyways, and it's just, it's just not going to happen, you know? Um, so I guess, yeah, scaling the exercise intervention or whatever intervention is there to, to the individual and then having some sort of like runway for progression um, makes a lot of sense for sure. Now, we, we did talk a little bit about manual therapy. You touched on it, but can you kind of discuss manual therapy using different tools um and what the pros and cons are of like what you do versus manual therapy and, and when you might use either or it's it's interesting because like what we do at dynamic is technically considered manual therapy mm-hmm. um technically really it's like i'm because i'm using my hands and putting you into positions and then just really getting you to load um, and that's basically just exercise in disguise, but it is still technically considered manual therapy. And then there's like massage and like, uh, you could talk about, um, instrument assisted soft tissue stuff and, uh, cupping and those kinds of things. And that's traditionally what people expect when it comes to manual therapy. What I think is really happening is, um, a, if you use enough pressure, it's uncomfortable. And that's more your like diffuse noxious inhibitory control. It's basically stimulating the nervous system enough to be like, okay, I'm going to produce some um, feel good chemicals here. So then at least it'll feel nice. If you need to do that enough to just be like, Oh, that's the kind of what rolling does and all that stuff where they can get back to their movement. Then you're like, cool. That's, that's cool. But if you don't need to use that, maybe it's like not necessary all the time. Some people really, really just like it. Um, like you said earlier with massage, some people you're meeting their expectations. Cause we have a lot of clients who are like, it, I only want to see a massage if it's like really deep. And like, I want a lot, like a heavy, a lot of pressure. So you're meeting their expectations to feel better. There is a bit of like a, a placebo component to that because um, you're meeting their bias of what they think is going to be the thing that heals them. But there is still, a, um, you're manipulating the sensory experience of what's happening really is, is all it is. And like sometimes just putting your hand on a shoulder, let's see, I'm putting my hands on a shoulder and then getting them to move can bring down pain and that all of a sudden is considered manual therapy. And that's just because I'm changing or manipulating the sensory experience um, to, to get into those ranges of motion that they require. 
No, that definitely makes sense. And so when you're dealing with a lifter, let's say that has apprehension, um, like for instance, myself uh, with my adductor, I'm still a little squeamish getting into the bottom of a, uh, of a squat, right? It still feels unstable. Um, doing a, a sumo deadlift from the floor, same thing, still feels a little iffy. It doesn't necessarily feel very stable. So how do you go about building up a little bit more um, confidence to be in those positions and to load those positions um, rather than, I guess, be a little bit too passive or apprehensive to actually prolong the recovery process? Yeah, because that's the hardest part, that fear avoidance where they just like, they can't get the capacity that they require because they're they're just a little too gun shy about getting there. Um, well, A, um, I just, I really just let you load into me and we could figure out how to, what pressure you could produce where you can get into that position, whether you're taking away load or modifying the range of motion and like, and we're just increasing graded exposure to those ranges of motion. Um, it just depends on the person, but sometimes just being like, you could push harder than you think um, if you could figure out how to send the load here. And then I just give them up an opportunity to figure out how to do that. Like, for example, with your yourself, when we were workshopping, what we were doing last time, you were loading quite well. Like the adductor itself is tolerant to a massive amount of force. And you were the one that told me that you could do a full stack of like an adductor pull. So like, we know that tissue can tolerate X amount of force, but for whatever reason, the position that you're get you're requiring um, is still painful. Um, and it's probably because you haven't addressed that muscles contraction in that range of motion, because I think I actually was looking at who you've interviewed in the past and Kasim was like you have to load the tissue in the range of motion specific to what you require. Cause especially with the hip, cause it changes based off of hip flexion. Right. So that's where the biomechanics are involved. But if we load you close to it with a lighter weight and you can kind of rep out there and get like a little bit of a uh, metabolic stimulus, we're like, okay, cool. Now you don't have to have pain there. We can load it generally enough or, we go single leg in some sort of variation where there is inherently going to be less load because it's single leg rather than double. And then we load it in that fashion, but give it enough stress where the body has to kind of buttress it and lay down new tissue and figure out how to kind of load share in different areas. But um, you can't figure that out by not doing it. And we kind of take the approach of, like, let's get you as close to that position and close to that load as possible, as soon as possible, or else you're just never going to get there without that. So having had quite a bit of experience um, treating lifters, have you noticed anything that's maybe absent from their programs that if implemented correctly would probably either reduce the frequency and severity of injuries, or at least make their performance potentially a little bit more consistent over time? Like, is there anything that's kind of lacking, like let's say uh, more dynamic 
uh, stability work, more mobility work, whatever it might be. I was going to facetiously say you should add more Turkish get-ups and Bulgarian split squats. <laughs> um, I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. Um, no, I don't. I actually don't. I don't think. I don't think generally there's something that everyone's missing or like a sport is missing. But uh, uh, that's maybe not true. I think strength sports because like I'm like I could speak to that very very well. Um, cause I mostly see powerlifters and weightlifters. I think we don't do enough low intensity cardiovascular work for a, um, just like the health benefit of like having a strong heart and B, I think like we were talking about in terms of step count and like getting like a, like a nice brisk walk out there, it's low hanging fruit where your brain has an opportunity to figure out how to share loads through a single leg. Like walking is a it's single leg work, right? Like, and it's repetitive, it's cyclic load and no movement is exactly the same. Your, your brain and your nervous system is going to prioritize many different permutations of movement in order to just execute that function. And by walking, there is going to be a load share in the ankle, knee and hip for a long distance. That's like what hundreds of reps that you can kind of do. And your brain can be like, Oh, I can load share. I'm like, the ankle's going to take a little bit more weight. The knee's going to take a little bit more weight. Now the hip's going to take a little bit more weight. And then you kind of just sprinkle that in. And it's just, different than what we normally do, where it's just like, let's see how much we could send into our hips and our quads so we could just get as much power output as possible or strength output as possible. Right. So it's, it's different enough where there is also an additional health benefit. Um, and then it just encourages blood flow in that area. Yeah. And then for runners, Oh man, I would say as a community, Generally, they don't strength train enough. Um, and it's baffling to me because the amount of forces in running is quite high. And when I tell someone that they need to like do a pretty heavy single leg calf raise or like a single leg quarter squat or like a Bulgarian, for example, on one leg and they're like, they just hate doing it. And I'm like, this is just going to make your muscles tolerate more load so that your tendons and ligaments and joint structure don't have to take all of it. Like, but I don't know, like generally that community could probably benefit from maybe a little bit more strength training. Um, yogis are the same way. They usually, uh, people usually gravitate towards what their body type is really good at. And most yogis are just like, tend to be super flexible and they just don't get more capacity in those end ranges. And that's where they hurt themselves is because then they just don't have the strength in those end ranges. They just kind of fall into them all the time. So yeah, like you start to follow certain populations and you noticed repetitive motion injuries that happen, but um, it's so funny. It always ends up being like, more strength training 
that's similar but different enough to just like prevent overuse like gpp like general physical preparedness yeah yeah no that that definitely is something that's lacking a lot i know i get a lot of my lifters um to hit a step count um every day for sure i think that's something that's like super super important even just for work capacity like i i've definitely noticed that like individual recovery work capacity doms a lot of that stuff um goes down in a lot of my lifters who are consistently hitting like you know eight to twelve thousand steps a day um and i think it's yeah i think even just from like a stress management standpoint like yeah the fact that you're going out just for a walk because <laughs> like I mean, you were talking about getting hundreds of reps, but if you're doing 10,000 steps, it's thousands of steps every single day. And 10,000 steps takes about 90 minutes to two hours-ish, something like that, you know? Um, and I mean, if you're walking, like let's say you split that. So I, I split it up into two walks personally. I do a walk in the morning. Uh, I walked actually just got back before we jumped on this podcast. And then I walked to training, which is about an hour as well. Um, to get my steps in and I find that like if I'm in a bad mood and I go for a walk I'll probably still be in a bad mood for like the first two-thirds of it and then the last third I kind of relax and just sort of like come back and you know you got some movement in you're feeling a little bit better like you said you're getting your blood flow going you're getting some fresh air you're getting some movement in and it's just like I don't know you're just in like a better mood in general because you know, it's like we're meant to move. <laughs> so absolutely. It's crazy to think that like you have to hit a step target because I work from home, right? And uh I've measured my step count if I just work and like have a chill day, and it's like 200. <laughs> like it's so bad. Wow. So yeah. so I need to make sure that every single day I get my step count in, or else it's just like I just feel like a piece of shit. Like I just feel so awful. You know, um, yeah, with, with the whole pandemic thing, there were like patients telling me they're like, yeah, my step count from even just like being in the office to now, now that they're all, well, ever, thank God everyone's going back to the office a little bit more, but they were like horrified how they would normally regularly hit 10,000. And then now that they're working from home, they're like, I'm not even hitting over a thousand. I was like, what are you doing? Like, you're just sitting there. Are you a house plant? I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, the number of people that I know who gained a bunch of weight during the pandemic, like lots and lots of people struggled with weight gain over that time for a variety of reasons, including stress and all that other stuff. But like disrupted, disrupted routine is, is massive when you're looking at like environmental cues for healthy habits versus unproductive habits. Like it's, it's such a huge deal. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess you, you kind of mentioned a couple of things there, but like sort of self-selecting into, I guess, modes of training or specific aspects of training that tend to be better suited for you anyway. So I got a, I did a Q and a yesterday. And one of the questions that I got was like, how do I get my, how did, how, how did I get my quads so big or my legs so big? And my answer was nothing like it's purely genetics. And the fact that I just naturally had big quads made me want to do more leg dominated things, which then led to my quads getting bigger because I have a natural predisposition for that, which again, made me want to do more of it. And it was just this kind of like 
self-perpetuating process. And I think a lot of the times, especially with the injuries or um, let's say if you have a mobility restriction or, I mean, I, I know a lot of people who are like, oh, I don't do barbell bench press anymore because it hurts my shoulders. And I'm like, okay, why does it hurt your shoulders? And they're like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm like, well, it's worth looking into. Cause I mean, if you can't take your arms to here, you know, if you can't lift your arms over your head, that might be a problem. You know, you might want to yeah. keep that, especially as you're getting older. And so I think a lot of the times, and, and I know power lifters, especially heavyweight uh, lifters, and there's a lot of heavyweights at the strength edge with the, the gym that I train out of. And uh, I know for a lot of people, like that just kind of gets neglected. It's just like, ah, you know, it's okay. Like, I'm a big guy. I don't need this. It's just sort of expected. it's like, man, you shouldn't be purple. Like that's not, not a good <laughs> thing. Like your blood pressure is so high. That's not, that's not healthy, you know, or like you should be able to, to lift your arm up above your head without a huge issue. You know, you should be able to put on your shoes without doing the Valsalva maneuver. It's like, there's things we can do to help you with that, to improve your health. And I think that, that also extends to kind of like, you know, potentially injury risk management or just um, uh, kind of getting into those positions that you were talking about that might be more beneficial, like unilateral work or whatever, maybe more dynamic core stabilization drills that don't necessarily get uh, prioritized with, with like the squat bench and deadlift or, or snatch clean jerk. Um, and so in terms of... Um, modifying an athlete's training like how do you go about doing that like by allowing them to one continue training in the most productive way while still attacking their their rehab as aggressively as possible because for an athlete they are obviously worried about injury but you know like in my case for instance you know i had uh, a competition a couple weeks away from my oblique tear and so um, can you just kind of give a little bit more insight into how you go about that process? Yeah, so we use a, utilize a lot of isometrics uh, in the hopes of like utilizing its effect on like exercise-induced analgesia. Like, I have no problem with someone pushing it when they're close to comp, and especially if that's a big comp that they need to do. And then because we can always just like reassess after. So if if there's something in the short term that we could just dampen the pain and get you loaded, I'm okay with that, but I will make sure that we have a conversation that we have to fix this after. So that's like a big part of it. So if you could just find something to manipulate their painful experience and then getting them loading exactly the way they can, there's nothing wrong with that. I actually think that's actually a good sign. The fact that pain is modifiable within one session is huge like the fact that you can get them closer and closer to it as much as they possibly can then you just replicate that during their training so that's where a lot of the treatment is just figuring out how we can dampen that as quickly as possible to gain access to the thing that's required um sometimes it's say we're like months out and you can get a couple of of big training blocks in um for example, some of the powerlifters that I'll see, they'll be like, oh, I have like this weird shoulder going on or I rotate with one shoulder, not the other one. And I think it's my shoulder rotation. And you're like, well, when was the last time you did a dumbbell bench press? 
and they're like, I've never done a dumbbell bench press. You're like, well, like, why don't we start there? And like, cause it's an expanded range of motion. Like the transferability is pretty good. So we'll get you benching, but it'll just be a dumbbell bench press. And the limiter is going to be that clearly weaker arm that just isn't dealing with the capacity that the other shoulder is able to do or vice versa, that it's overdoing all that's usually what happens and it's overdoing all of the work and it's just getting overloaded. So we just got to kind of get both caught up to speeds that when you do have the torque of the barbell, it's going to be even easier. Um, Sometimes it's as simple as just changing what they use in, in training. If it's um, something a little bit more serious where you can't even like do the thing that you need to do, you have to, if a strict press is all they can do, but they can't bench press and all right, let's get them into a strict press, then get them into an incline and then slowly lower that incline until it looks almost exactly like a bench press or it does look like a bench press and you just go from there. And then you're just kind of getting them closer and closer to their ranges. But that takes working with a coach. And that's why I almost always prefer to work with um, someone and their coach. It's just way easier. I don't have to give them all these like exercises to do when they could just have it programmed and then they'll be way more consistent. In fact, if I have a patient that doesn't have a coach, we have like a pretty good network and we're like, okay, what are your goals? Cause this person is who I would send you for X, Y, and Z. This person is who I would send you for X, Y, and Z. Uh, what do you want? Where do you live in the city? Who do you, like, maybe you, do you even jive with this person? These are two people. Maybe you can meet them. And then we co-manage because it's way easier. If I, if I don't have to see you in the clinic and we could just figure out, okay, there's limitations in this range of motion. There's weakness in this range of motion comparative to the other side. We could just plug in an exercise once a week and then progressively overload. But um, it's mostly just exploration for accessory movements, really. Yeah, no, 100%. And so you talked a little bit about like tissue tolerance um, and I think that kind of like sort of bridges on the relationship between technique and injury. Now I'm not necessarily going to open up that can of worms because I feel like that'd be a really interesting kind of separate conversation on its own, but it is <laughs> worth mentioning because um, you know, like for instance, you look at like different types of deadlifts and how many bicep tears have happened from a sumo deadlift hook rip to my knowledge, not any, <laughs> I don't think there's been a single one that I've ever heard of, but how many bicep tears have people incurred by having like a mixed grip quite a lot more, you know? And so it's like, there's obviously relationship, but then I guess maybe, maybe a more relevant example might be if you're not necessarily stabilizing at the bottom of a squat and you're overloading certain tissues while others are deprioritized, that might end up being a linchpin, which ends up aggravating it because it's like just, loading the tissue beyond what it's what it's capable of doing because we don't have the synergistic effect of stability around maybe the posterior chain if the glutes are weak and the adductors are having to provide most of the hip extension torque yeah so exactly yeah how, how do you how do you work with with individuals like that because that's even that was even an issue for me when i went yeah. in doing those uh, lateral cossacks um with a goblet squat 
Yeah, because like um, for whatever reason, your brain is choosing the adductor for extension at that point. Um, we're like, okay, well, like let's see how we can make this uh, conscious effort into loading other parts where you can ex execute that. And the thing about like, for example, with yourself, when we were working on that lateral COSAC, that um, to me in my head, based off of that, is that within the frontal plane, the reason you've injured your adductor, which yes, it's completing extension, but um, it's other movement is in the frontal plane, it's abduction, adduction. Well, then why don't we hit the other side and work on what the abductors could be? Because they need to work synergistically with each other, right? It's just for joint stability. So we try to give your brain a chance to execute extension while loading abduction, which is perfect with the COSAC because you have to push in outwards, right? So, sorry, inwards as you're going back into midline. So we've replicated that position of the bottom of the squat um, but we're just putting the joint stress or the muscular stress really in a different fashion. So you can bias the, the lateral portion of the hip rather than the medial portion of the hip. And then it just gives your brain an opportunity like, Oh, cool. I can also use this as an option for hip extension as we move into in and out of these movements. And then you just hope is like you know half the time I don't I'm just assuming I'm just making an educated guess that this could be working and then you just assume that it should transfer over because a it's the same position b um, it's heavy enough to kind of to load more and more often you can get closer and closer and heavier and heavier to kind of what you require and then you just go from there because really all that matters in the end is are you able to back squat <laughs> yeah. And I, I think the thing I like about that approach as well is it's not an absolute regression to the basics, which I think sometimes people tend to rush to. They're like, oh, I hurt my back. I should probably start doing bird dogs. And it's like, well, maybe, you know, but is there anything that maybe you could do that's not such a significant regression? Maybe something that still has some sort of dynamic correspondence because it is dynamic in nature and not a static activity. You know, um, something that maybe looks like similar positions, exactly like you were saying, the Cossack squat, where it's like, well, it's kind of half of a squat, basically, you know, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I definitely like that approach. I definitely find it uh, is, is pretty effective and uh, for, for myself anyways. Um, so we're coming up on that hour mark and I want to be respectful of your time. Where yeah. can people find you? Um, I'm at our Beltline clinic mostly uh it is uh, right across from mec in calgary alberta the address is 833 10th avenue southwest and then uh you can actually just give me a follow on instagram shoot me a dm if you have any other questions it's coach rsa awesome and you have a, a instagram account for dynamic yyc yep there's it's just at dynamic yyc Okay, awesome. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely go make sure you give him a follow. Check out the clinic if you are local to Calgary. Um, I've been going there off and on for quite a while now, and it's been keeping me pretty 
pretty healthy. Like I'll have injuries, but they won't actually stop me from, from, uh, from lifting or training, which has been really, really a big difference uh, from before where I'll have like a catastrophic injury where it's like, okay, now you're in a back brace for a year. So even <laughs> though I experienced like minor injuries, it's been a massive, massive change from, from previously. So I'd highly recommend checking them out. Um, thanks so much for jumping on Ray with awesome chatting. Yeah. Anytime. <laughs>